Hello, Salam, Diagwis, and welcome to the History of Modern Iran podcast, episode 8, The Road to Herat. On our last episode, we saw how the reforming chief minister, Amir Kabir, was overthrown and executed by a coalition of his opponents and replaced by his lieutenant, Mirza Aga Khan Nuri. The contrast between the new vizier and the old could not have been more stark. Where Kabir had shown an almost shocking disregard for protocol, Nuri relished in grandiose titles, ceremony and elaborate court ritual. These tendencies were reflected even in his clothing. The attire of the mid-19th century Gajar court was a sort of compromise between Persian tradition and imported European styles. By the time of Nasr al-Din, shorter beards and less elaborate outfits had come to dominate elite fashions in place of the elongated facial hair and flowing garments of the early Gajar elite. Nuri, by contrast, were the long beard, sumptuous robes and gilded ornamentation of an earlier generation. In many ways, both in style and in substance, he harkened back to a bygone age of Persian grandeur before the trauma of Iran's encounter with Europe. More a courtier than an administrator, Nuri was crooked, greedy and vain. And under his leadership, the corruption, graft and dysfunction of the pre-Amir Kabir era returned with a bang. Having come to power with the backing of Mad Ulya and the aristocracy, Nuri immediately set about restoring their wages, pensions and stipends, while distributing gifts to his own extensive patronage network. Most of Amir Kabir's reforms were abandoned, with the almost sole exception of the Dar al-Fanun, and even this was due largely to the Shah's personal fondness for the institution. Without Kabir's austere inclinations and personal integrity, the Gajar state reverted to its normal state of kleptocratic inefficiency. Abbas Aminat quotes a French diplomat who complained that, quote, government affairs have reverted to Agassiz's time. Buying and selling of government bonds has been reinstituted. The payment of salaries is a struggle. Unprovided payment orders were assigned to all provinces and all the chaos that existed previously has now returned. End quote. One group who stood to gain from the new leadership in Tehran were the remnants of the Babi movement, who hoped that the removal of Amir Kabir might mean an end to, or at least an amelioration of, the persecution they had suffered under the old regime. After the defeats at Sheikh Tabarsi, Nehruiz and Zanjan, and the execution of the Bab himself, the Babi movement entered a period of crisis. Repression drove many prominent Babis into exile, while those who remained in Iran were forced to go underground. The loss of the Bab and many of his most important deputies also left the movement leaderless and divided. Among the survivors of Kabir's repression, two broad trends emerged. On the one hand were a group of moderates who sought to tone down the more radical and millenarian tendencies of Babism and to reach some sort of modus vivendi with the government. These Babis 
were led by a minor aristocrat named Mirza Hussein Ali Nuri. If that name sounds familiar, then it should. Both the moderate Babi leader and the new chief minister came from the newer region of Mazandaran and were in fact distantly related. Mirza Hussein Nuri is better known for later becoming the founder of the Baha'i religion and by his later title, Baha'u'llah, which we will call him so as to avoid confusion with Mirza Akhan Nuri, the Shah's chief minister. Nuri, that is, Minister Nuri, evidently had some sympathy for the followers of the Bab and made contact with Baha'u'llah in the hopes of reaching some kind of agreement with the moderate Babis. He even invited Baha'u'llah out of hiding to temporarily reside in Tehran as a guest of Nuri's brother, a signal of the new premier's willingness to compromise. Apart from the moderates led by Baha'u'llah, there was another more radical faction of Babis. This other trend went in the opposite direction to the course pursued by the moderates. They emphasised the illegitimacy of the state and the necessity for an apocalyptic struggle, including violence and martyrdom, that it would usher in the new prophetic cycle promised by their martyred prophet. In Tehran, a small group of these radicals, led by a militant cleric named Sheikh Ali Azim, set their sights on the Shah, whom they hoped to murder in revenge for the execution of the Bab. Their chance came on the 15th of August 1852, when the Shah was about to embark on a hunting expedition with only a handful of bodyguards. A group of disguised Babis approached the Shah on the pretext of presenting a petition. Taken by surprise, Nasser al-Din's defenders failed to react as the first shots were fired, one of which hit the king in the groin and caused him to fall from his horse. One of the assailants then drew a dagger and gutted one of the Shah's bodyguards as he tried to force a way through to his target. One assassin was killed by the royal bodyguards as they hastened to the king's defence and drove off the aggressors. Two of the assailants were captured, while the remainder fled the scene. As assassination attempts go, it was pretty pathetic. The shot that struck the Shah was fired from a gun loaded with partridge shot and slugs, causing only a minor flesh wound in the monarch's nether regions, while the knife wielder only succeeded in inflicting superficial cuts and abrasions on the royal person. Indeed, the Shah was able to receive the British and Russian ambassadors just a few hours after his brush with death, where he was described by the British minister's wife, Lady Sheil, as, quote, seated as usual and more angry than alarmed, end quote. If the physical consequences of the attack were minor, the political repercussions were more significant. In the immediate aftermath of the attack, inaccurate reports reached Tehran that the Shah had been killed. Almost immediately, the city descended into chaos, fearing a more generalised Babi conspiracy or a descent into civil war. Order was restored once the rumours of Nasser al-Din's death were proved false. The Babis, whether radicals like Azim or moderates like Baha'u'llah, braced themselves for the official response. Nuri's opponents took the opportunity to smear him as a crypto-Babi for his earlier attempts at compromise 
and for his familial connections to Mazandarani Babis like Baha'u'llah. These attacks compelled the vizier to return to Kabir-era policies of repression and persecution against the scattered remnants of the Bab's disciples. The assassins and their co-conspirators were punished without mercy. The Babi who had shot the Shah had incisions made all over his body, into which burning candles were placed, before he was stabbed in the groin and stoned to death. Another conspirator was hacked to pieces with hatchets and maces. Another was handed over to the artillerymen, who plucked out the prisoner's eye and blew him out of a mortar. More prosaic but equally draconian repression followed for the rank-and-file Babis who had not already fled the country. Nasr al-Din had always viewed the Babis as heretics and apostates. After the assassination attempt, he became even more vociferous in his opposition to the sect, never forgetting how close they had come to ending his life. After 1852, any chance of reconciliation between the state and the Babis vanished. The attack also intensified the paranoid and insecure aspects of the Shah's personality. He became convinced that senior figures in the government and the royal family had collaborated with his would-be killers, and fear of assassination followed Nasser al-Din for the rest of his life. Considering the Shah's eventual fate, it goes to show that just because you're paranoid don't mean they're not after you. The death of Kabir also meant the end of his policy of balanced equilibrium in Persian dealings with Russia and Britain. Given Nuri's close relationship with the British, London probably hoped that the change in leadership in Tehran would lead the pendulum of Persian foreign policy to swing back towards Britain. Instead, Nuri would find himself reluctantly leading a war against his former allies. How did this unlikely scenario come to pass? Anglo-Persian relations had always been strained, but throughout the 1850s they deteriorated even further. One factor in this worsening relationship was Britain's alliance with the Ottoman Turks. We've already mentioned a few times the importance of the Shia shrine cities in Ottoman-ruled southern Iraq as well as the large Shia population of the region, whose presence often led to friction between Tehran and Istanbul. The Ottoman authorities routinely subjected their Shiite subjects to violence and persecution, inevitably aggravating the Iranian government, which saw itself as the protector and guarantor of the rights of Shiites, including those who lived beyond its borders. In 1843, for example, the Ottoman governor of Baghdad had attacked the Shia holy city of Karbala and massacred 15,000 defenceless inhabitants in a display of outright and bloodthirsty sectarianism. The Treaty of Erzurum, negotiated in 1847, did little to soothe tensions. Just one year after the compact was signed, while Amir Kabir was distracted by the Salah revolt and the Babi uprisings, Ottoman forces seized the border region of Kotur over the objections of the local population. 
Tehran had other grievances with Istanbul, such as the ease with which Sunni Kurdish border tribes were able to raid Shiite subjects of the Shah before dashing back across the border into the safety of Ottoman territory. Increasingly annoyed by Ottoman tolerance of these raids, the Shah decided to make a show of strength by conducting a large-scale military review in Saltaniye, near the Turkish border. The Ottoman-allied British, however, were dead set against the exercise and put their foot down against the protests of the Shah. The incident worsened relations between Tehran and London and pushed Nasser al-Din closer to his Russian neighbours, themselves on the brink of war with the Ottomans and eager to enlist the Shah as an ally. Another source of tension with the British related to the United Kingdom's interference in domestic Iranian politics. Keen-eared listeners may have heard me mention British or Russian protégés on previous episodes. The term on its own simply means something akin to apprentice, but in the context of Gajar-era Iranian politics, it referred to important figures who enjoyed the patronage and formal diplomatic protection of either the Russian or the British. By offering protection, and even citizenship, to fallen viziers, ministers and princes, the great powers gambled that their investment would yield benefits when political upheavals in Tehran brought the fallen politician in question back to the centre of power, as it happened with Nuri. Both the British and the Russians were excessively liberal in their distribution of protection, often offering their patronage for no good reason other than to beat their rivals to the punch. Other protégés were simply spies who received British and Russian pensions in exchange for forwarding court gossip to their respective consulates, or climbers who leveraged their great power connections to receive important and lucrative appointments. While both the British and the Russians grotesquely abused the protégé system, it was the former who were most generous with their protection. Accordingly, as Nasser al-Din became increasingly resentful of a system which he saw, with more than a little justification, as undermining the authority of his throne and the state, it was the British, rather than the Russians, who became the focus of his irritation. Nasser al-Din's personal insecurity about threats to his throne from other senior Gajar princes made his resentment of the protégé system highly personal. The Shah's uncle, Bahman Mirza, for example, was under the Tsar's protection in Russia and was an obvious choice for regent should Nasser al-Din find himself dead, incapable or ousted from power. Throughout the 1850s, though, the greatest bone of contention between the Shah and the British was the city of Herat. The Pearl of Khorasan, Herat was one of the largest and most prosperous cities of Central Asia, with a population of 100,000, a bustling regional economy and an abundance of fertile soil. Herat is now a part of the modern nation of Afghanistan, but in the 19th century, the status of the city and its environs was very much in question. Herat had been an integral part of the old Safavid state before its collapse, at one point serving as the dynasty's capital. Over time, though, 
Persian control over Herat had weakened, and the city alternated between independence, nominal loyalty to Tehran, and rule by local chieftains. For the Gajars, Herat was an essential part of the Iranian polity that could not be abandoned under any circumstances, even if their actual control of the city was nominal and irregular. The Iranians were not the only ones who sought to possess the Pearl of Khorasan. The riches of the city were also coveted by numerous Afghan emirs and warlords. The British, zealously protective of their wealthy colonies in India, saw the city, strategically located on the road to the Khyber Pass, as vital to their interests on the subcontinent. London, always paranoid about Russian influence in Persia, feared that their enemies in St. Petersburg could benefit from Persian control of the city. London favoured autonomy for Herat. They wanted to use the city and its hinterlands as a buffer state against any possible threats to northwest India. In 1837, Nasr al-Din's father had ordered an expedition to take Herat from its rebellious ruler. The siege dragged on for nearly a year, until the British, unwilling to accept Iranian control of the city, occupied the island of Kharg and threatened to capture the Persian port of Bushehr. Facing war with the British, Mohammed Shah Qajar was forced to withdraw from Herat in humiliation. The Iranians, however, never relinquished their claim to the city. The Qajar house understood that their legitimacy as the heirs to the old Safavid state required them to hold Herat, at least nominally. Besides this patriotic factor, there was also the aggravating issue of Afghan and Turkmen raiding into Persian Khorasan and the fact that the population of Herat were majority Shia. As the Sultan of the Shiites, to quote just one of his many titles, Nasr al-Din felt duty-bound to protect his co-religionists, whom he saw as oppressed by the rule of Sunni Afghan chiefs. For the Iranian government, the issue of Herat became more pressing during the mid-1850s. The disunited and warring emirates of Afghanistan had always been a nuisance, but as long as they stayed more focused on fighting each other, they presented only an inconvenience and an annoyance to Tehran. That was all about the change. Under the leadership of the calculating and ruthless Emir of Kabul, Dost Muhammad Khan, most of what we now consider Afghanistan was in the process of being united into a single state. In 1855, the Emir had captured the region of Gandahar, bringing his power to the doorstep of semi-independent Herat. Always one to move with the prevailing winds of politics, Dost Muhammad reversed his previous policy of resistance against the British and signed a defensive treaty with them in 1855, signalling his intention to rule Afghanistan as a buffer state on behalf of his former enemies. To the Shah, it seemed as though it was only a matter of time before Muhammad Khan, with implicit British support, would seize Herat. Were the city to fall into the hands of a powerful British ally like Dost Muhammad Khan, 
any possibility of reintegrating the city into the Gajar realm would dissipate, possibly forever. All this tension with the British might not have escalated into war had it been solely down to Nuri. The Premier was not a risk-taker by nature, and he was still inclined to favour London in foreign policy. However, the Shah had not removed Amir Kabir simply to play second fiddle to a new Premier. While Nasser al-Din was happy to leave most domestic matters to Nuri, the Shah insisted that he himself manage the foreign affairs of the state, a task for which he was severely underqualified. Despite the realities of Iran's weak international position and ineffective armed forces, Nasser al-Din increasingly saw himself in terms of his predecessors, great steppe warlords like Genghis Khan, Babur, Nader Shah, Timur the Great and Nasser al-Din's own great-great-granduncle, Aga Muhammad Khan. The Shah aspired to join this pantheon of conquerors. Flattered by Nuri, without a more stubborn figure like Amir Kabir to rein in his delusions, the Shah ached for a chance to accomplish some great military victory. In 1853, when the Ottoman Empire, France and Britain went to war with Russia in the Crimea, it seemed as though Nasser al-Din might finally have his chance to imitate the achievements of his predecessors by reconquering some of Iran's lost territories. Against the objections of a reluctant Nuri, the Shah concluded a secret treaty with Russia in 1854. The treaty compelled Iran to halt British arms and provisions from reaching their Ottoman allies in return for a Russian suspension of the war indemnity that Iran still owed from the Second Russo-Persian War. The Shah felt confident. Russian success in the early stages of the Crimean War and memories of the 1826 curb stomp gave Nasser al-Din the impression of Russian invincibility. He was convinced that they would emerge the victors in the Crimea, after which the Shah would reap the benefits of the post-war settlement which, he hoped, would see Herat returned to Iran. If only things always panned out like we wanted them to. Thanks for listening. As always, you can get in touch via email, historyofmoderniranpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow on Twitter at modern underscore Iran. Until next time, goodbye. Slon, hold out.